This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I'm reading today online and other places about the value of Bitcoin is going through the roof. Bitcoin is now worth 13,000 Canadian dollars, apparently. And I'm thinking, I don't really know what this is. I'm guessing a lot of other people don't. I asked around. Most other people may have had some idea, but it wasn't necessarily right. Or they thought they knew, but they really didn't. So thought we would do what we do whenever we have an issue with finances and economics that we don't really understand. We'd bring in a guy who does understand it, who can hopefully explain it to us so that 10, 12 minutes from now when he signs off, we all have learned something. That, of course, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. I'm just going to take a shot at your trivia question. I believe it's Anne Murray. Anne Murray was originally... That, that wasn't that Canada's Snowbird. She changed her name. Yes, and that that famous Queen song, yes. Anne Murray. Yep. Yeah, Freddie Mercury really ripped that one. All right. Oh, you know, I have I have that both on vinyl and on CD. Let us get to this, and I'm just going to throw the door open to okay. you because most people have heard suddenly about Bitcoin, okay. but really don't know what the heck it is that they are supposed to be understanding. Take a run at this and just explain what Bitcoin is. Okay, well, first, why they haven't heard about it is not that old. It only came to be around in 2010. The name Bitcoin is just a combination of a computer bit and the idea of a coin. We call it a cryptocurrency because it doesn't exist. I can show you what a Canadian $20 bill or $100 bill looks like but I actually can't show you what a Bitcoin looks like because it doesn't exist. It only exists in those ones and zeros in the digital world on computers around the world. That's why it's called a cryptocurrency. And it's also not the only one out there. Since Bitcoin debuted in 2010, there's over 100 of these digital currencies out there, all unregulated. Now, usually a currency has a central bank behind it. So the Canadian dollar has the Bank of Canada or the British pound has the Bank of England. And they help set the tone, help handle the monetary policy. This is truly a free market creation. And can I stop you for just one yep. second there, Marvin? I want to let you let you go. But my understanding is from my history, my high school history courses, that once upon a time, your value of your currency was established in by how much gold you had or something else. There was something that you would have to show for, you could put out the currency, but we have this much money that would prop that up or that would establish. This literally, there's nothing behind it. It's made up. There's nothing behind it. It's made up, right. So you're talking about what was called the gold standard. Of course. And, and many nations were on the gold standard. There used to be a wonderful vault somewhere. And in fact, when one nation traded with another, bars of gold went from one vault to another. All that's gone past. This is actually more like the way the world was back in around 1800 where every bank issued its own currency, and it was only as good as that bank was to support it. So if you go far enough back, you know, the Bank of Montreal had currency, Royal Bank had currency, nothing existed that was on a national level. So this is all virtual currency. Now, why was it created? Well, the thinking was that people uh, wanted to do international trading, and every time you try to do international trading, there's a currency exchange. In other words, if I buy something in American dollars and I'm paying Canadian dollars, I pay 2 or 3% as a transaction cost. What if the world truly had an international currency could be used around the world? And that's why Bitcoin was created. Uh, when, it, when it was created, it was worth a, a penny. It was worth an American penny. And that's where it started from. If I had $100 invested in Bitcoin when it started today, it'd be worth roughly $1.5 million. Wow. I chose not to put that money in because... 
what goes up quickly can also come down quickly, and that's what bothers me about Bitcoin. Uh, there is no regulations, and it's also rather thinly traded. What do I mean by that? Only 16 million people in the world own Bitcoin. There's 7.3 billion of us in the world, so a very small number of people own the Bitcoin. The transactions are also rather thin, so I don't know if what we're seeing represents some real interest in the currency, or do we have two people who are just trying to bid it up to, to all kinds of heights? Just to give you a sense of the volatility of this currency, you got interested yesterday when it hit $10,000. Then this morning, it hit $11,000. Right now, it's at $9,800. Yeah. It, but why is it so high? Well, uh, maybe I can try that slightly differently. So why does it move at all? When, the, uh, the, when Bitcoin was created, there's actually a name associated with it. It's a Japanese-sounding name. I'm not going to give it to you. And everyone thought, ah, oh, that's a real person who created Bitcoin. It's not. It seems to have been some kind of shadowy committee who created it. And when they created Bitcoin, they set up a charter. They said, here are the rules that are going to govern Bitcoin. One of them is that the total number of Bitcoins is not going to grow very quickly. And in fact, there's a cap. Right now, about 3,000 new Bitcoins are created every day. They're created because you provide a service to Bitcoin. You loan them your other computer. They use your computing power. They use your hard disk to help store information everywhere around the world. But within about two or three years, the total number of Bitcoins are going to stop. There will be no more Bitcoins. And like anything else in supply and demand, if there's no more new coins coming out and demand goes up, suddenly the price of it goes up. The most recent wave of Bitcoin interest seemed to have started about three weeks ago with, and I know this is going to shock the hell out of you, <laughs> with the crisis in Zimbabwe. <coughs> now, let's suppose you're a relatively rich person in Zimbabwe. Mr. Mugabe, who was the leader, he was under house arrest, then he wasn't, then he was going to resign, then he wasn't, and then there might be a coup. And if you had money locally in Zimbabwe, you watched the value of the currency just about disappear to zero. And you say, I can't, I can't leave my money like this. I've worked too hard. What do I do with it? In the past, what you did with it was you bought gold, because gold was sort of a global currency. You could use it around the world, and it retained its value. The only thing is it's just kind of hard to walk into a store with a gold bar and peel off a few shavings and, <laughs> and pay for your groceries. So when Bitcoin was created, a lot of people in the world said, aha, I'll put my money in Bitcoin. And when all the problems started in Zimbabwe, there was a real rush of people, not just in Zimbabwe, but in neighboring countries in Africa, because they were afraid they were going to see a whole revolution and all this upheaval, and suddenly people were rushing in there. But we don't know for sure that's what's happening. As I say, this could be like a Ponzi scheme. Two, three, five people could be collaborating to drive the price of it up, and we really don't know what's behind it. That's, again, when there's no government behind it. I think this is a real gamble to get involved. Well, it, it strikes me, and when I was following this and, and looking at it, it strikes me that it wasn't that many years ago. I don't, I've lost track of how many years, but the whole dot-com thing yep. went kaput. And this strikes me as the same thing. When you have something that doesn't really exist rocketing up in value, and you just alluded to it, it could very easily crumble right under your feet. Absolutely. Now, Bitcoin has only been around now roughly seven years. In that seven years, five times there have been corrections in the value of the Bitcoin now, wait for this, where the price of it fell more than 80% in a 24-hour period. Eight zero, eighty 80% was $10,000 today, could be $2,000 tomorrow. Now, 
people would remind me, well, Marvin, that's pretty good because at the start of this year it was $1,000. If it just doubles in value in 11 months, that's still pretty good. But that's just how volatile it is and how unregulated. It truly is a currency of the wild, wild west. It is worth what somebody is willing to pay for. It's like a Wayne Gretzky rookie card. As long as there's somebody else who wants it, your rookie card has value. But if suddenly there was a whole boatload of them discovered, and they're now just as common as dirt, nobody's going to pay you anything for it, and it can fall apart. That's the other concern about Bitcoin, this charter that says that the total number of Bitcoins is fixed. Well, who says that? That's not written in Canadian law or American law or anybody. The same shadowy group who helped create Bitcoin could change the rules tomorrow. Right, and that was the next thing I was going to ask. Is the the people, the group that's behind this, is this a is this a money-making venture for them? Do they get a slice of every time someone buys a Bitcoin? We don't know. That's the bottom line. We just don't know. There's this this a the whole concept of a cryptocurrency is so new, and then we don't know the players behind it. Today there was a big story in the morning that uh, oh, I know who's behind this. Elon Musk, the same guy behind ah. Tesla and SpaceX. Now, he's come out with a press release that says, no, I have nothing to do with it. And the reason why I think people thought that is you have to have a certain computing expertise to have made this cryptocurrency reality, but we just don't know who's behind it. And so, you know, if you, if you had $100 and you wanted to go play the ponies tonight and instead you said, let me buy a Bitcoin or part of a Bitcoin, great, go ahead and do it, but understand that you could lose it just as fast. As long as you're comfortable with that, go ahead and play in this. But I... I come by my money too hard, therefore I don't like to take these kinds of gambles. But again, if the people or the group behind this is making a slice of everyone and we don't know, it would make all the sense in the world that they will continue to pump out more and more and more of these, and that is the way you immediately devalue it, is it not? By If, if suddenly the number goes way, way up, then the, pr- the value of it goes way, way down. Right. So now again, a couple of things that happened today. Why did the price fall today? There are special exchanges that have been created around the world just to trade in bitcoins, and two of them failed today. The volume was so high that the computers failed, and then when suddenly people couldn't trade their bitcoin, they thought, oh my God, here's the end of the world coming, and the price went down for that reason. We saw an exchange in Hong Kong two years ago fail because they said there was a massive hack, and they weren't sure how many of the bitcoins were real and how many of them were created using computers around the world. And then here's another quick thing. Well, why, why does somebody want the Bitcoin? Now, we know that 80% of the people who buy Bitcoins are buying them strictly as an investment. They believe they're going to keep going up in value, so they buy some and they just park them. But the other 20% are actually people who use them to buy things. There's 100,000 companies around the world who will accept Bitcoin as a payment. So who, who wants to do that rather than using Canadian dollars or American dollars? Well, there's this magical thing out there called the dark web. This is where evil things happen, like illicit drugs and and selling people into bondage and maybe even ordering a contract hit on somebody else. How do you pay for those people? We've all watched these forensic television shows where they swab the dollar bill and they get your DNA and you're in jail. Nobody wants that. A cryptocurrency is a great way for those more nefarious people to transfer their money around the world and in theory even, to launder money. I can take my dirty drug money, buy bitcoins with it, and now I can buy things around the world with those bitcoins. And governments, this currency is bigger than any one government. We do have today some governments in the world talking about banning bitcoins in their countries because they feel it's so unregulated and so nefarious. So again, getting into this, I've never been interested in it. It's not regulated. 
I don't necessarily like where it's going, but if you're a wheeler dealer, if you're part of that old Wild West, feel free to jump in. Just before I let you go, do you see the day ever that this actually replaces currency, though? That, that with, with everyone being online, with everyone now using yep. their phones and everything else, can there come a day when, whether it's Bitcoin or one of the other cryptocurrencies, that this is how we do our business? Well, it certainly could be. You know, remember why the euro was created in the first place. Francois Mitterrand, the president of France, traveled to all the members of the European Union, and, and on a symbolic gesture, every time he crossed a border, he converted his initial amount of currency to the local currency and just paid the transaction fees. By the time he got back to France, he had less than half the money he started with because of the transaction fees. People who look ahead, and whether that's 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, say we need to have a world currency, that having a Canadian and American and a Mexican currency doesn't make any sense. We should all have one currency. Is Bitcoin going to be it? I don't think so. Uh, will it be a government-sponsored one? Maybe the United Nations would come out with a currency. Maybe. It could also be a large corporation. If Apple decided to get into the mm. cryptocurrency business or Google or, or even Facebook, they would have the credibility, but the key is all of those organizations are identified and can be monitored. And that's what I need before I have comfort dealing with this. For me, Bitcoin is just too much of a novelty, too unregulated, too, too risky. I just don't take it seriously. But 16 million people on the planet do, and they're the ones driving these prices. You know, maybe you're missing the opportunity here. Rather than buying into Bitcoin, you should start the Marvcoin. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. And if it's just a Wild West and you can just start it up and make it go, you know, you could suddenly, this could be a nice retirement nest egg. Absolutely. There's more than a hundred of these cryptocurrencies out there, and they all have strange names. <laughs> one is called Ether, another one is called Litecoin, and, and uh, they were all up today in trading. It seems that a lot of people like this concept, but I, I want to see more regulation, and I think that's going to happen. I, right now, all the major banks, including the like Bank of Canada, Bank of England, they have ignored this. Because they just call it like a, it's an interesting occurrence happening on the sideline. If the whole thing were to fail, it doesn't cause a recession, it doesn't affect anybody's economy, and it's still the amount of money tied here is, is measured in maybe $10 billion, which really doesn't affect anything on a global scale. But if it were to continue to grow, and if you saw more of it taking root, it's just inevitable the governments are going to have to come in and try to regulate this in some way. Well, I would buy a few Marv coins if they well, were ever created. Heart. I'll get working on them. Do you, do you think it should be a picture of me on the coin? Oh, absolutely. Or, and maybe maybe something from Hamilton, the, the, the Steelhawks or something on the other side to give it some credibility. Whatever looks nicest would be, uh, I'll, I'll buy some of those. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Makes a nice Christmas gift. Yeah, absolutely. Be looking for that at your, well, not at a store near you. It would be the opposite of a store near you. Right. Thanks for doing this. Bye-bye now. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that it helps understand a little bit because I'm hearing this more and more and more, and so many people, as I say, that I talk to, just it's not something they know anything about how it works. And it's still, to me, even after the explanation, it was a terrific explanation, it's still a curiosity. I still don't exactly, I don't even know where you would go to buy one. I mean, online, obviously, but I don't, is there like the Bitcoin store? I don't know. But some people do. Ben, just before we go to break, have you ever bought a Bitcoin, ever bought any kind of cryptocurrency? No, I haven't, but I'd be interested in trying. Well, if someone wants to send me some for free, I'd be willing to look at it and try spending and, you know, seeing how it works. But 
Uh, interesting stuff. I, I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm with Marvin, though. I'm On something like this, I have no intention of sinking any money into this right now until there's something behind it. Because the whole idea of a currency that is, it's just, it's a one or a zero. It's a binary thing. It's just a digital thing. That's all it is. It's a one or a zero in computer code is, to me, kind of flighty. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Nine hundred CHML, Scott Radley show. We decided last week that um, Macho Man by the Village People was not an appropriate bring-in for Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. How's that one? Is that better? The best around? Oh, <laughs> come on! You can't get better than being called the best around. Oh no, I'll accept that. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That it was like that's like eighties nineties glam rock. Oh yeah, I I there, surely there's some wrestler in the WWE who used yeah. that as his entry oh, song. For sure, we would have we would have brought you in with "I Am a Real American," but that's kind of you know that's Hulk's thing, so you can't oh. really. Uh, uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, as I say, uh, let me get right to this because we uh, sadly our time as always is too short. There is a big soccer game going on down the road in Toronto tonight. Toronto FC looking to beat Columbus and advance to the MLS Championship. What is your level of interest in this game? Oh, it's huge. Is it? I mean, it is? I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anytime you get a... We've gone so long. I mean, and of course, you know, we're Hamilton... Uh, radio station and television station, and, and most of the listeners are from the Hamilton uh, Golden Horseshoe area. But I think we all, for the most part, follow Toronto, right? I mean, and, and their sports teams. And I mean, they, there seemed to be a period there of just such losing, and, and, and almost to the point of getting used to losing. And I think this is at a kind of a golden age that we're in right now. We're just coming off the two. Um, American League Championship Series from the Blue Jays, not so far removed from that. The, certainly, the, the you know the Maple Leafs are on an upswing. The Raptors have been knocking on the door for a couple of years, and now the Argonauts win the Grey Cup, and now TFC, one game away from uh, hosting the MLS Cup for a second straight year. So this is kind of a golden age. I find it very interesting. I think a lot of people are suddenly very interested in this team who otherwise have not been typically. And here's what I wonder about. How much of, do you think, how much of the interest in this team is the winning and how much is the the fact that this is a team that is now very good? How much is that? And how much is just tuning in because the atmosphere at these games is unlike anything else you can get around here. They have created somehow something that is just totally unique in even Canadian sports, in the in the crowd. I think a lot of people tune in just to see that. 
I I think it's all of everything that you everything included there, Scott. I mean, just like the Grey Cup. I don't know who could have turned on the TV set, and you didn't need to be a CFL football fan to turn on the the TV set and see you know the snow and the crowd and go, what's going on here? I mean, just the interest alone, and I think that's very much here when you turn on. Uh, a game like this at uh, BMO Field, and you see the, you know, the red explosion. I don't know how they get them in the stadium. Those firecrackers are going off, and smoke and, bombs, and yeah, 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 smoke bombs. The crowd is jumping and singing. That's part of the spectacle. But I also throw in the fact that you have a team now that 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 wins. Well, I mean, and that and it all. You're right. It does go together because honestly, if you had this kind of environment, if you had this kind of atmosphere at an Argo game, same stadium, if you had this at an Argo game, there would never be a seat available because whether you like football or not, you just want to be part of that. And and you know, Scott, being at the Eastern Final and a couple of Argo games this season, I believe if there was more people there. That everything is set up there for this to happen. Because the few diehards that are there, I think it's because they installed that roof in the stadium. And I'm telling you, anyone that has not been there wouldn't understand. And for the people that have been there, say for Cat Argo games, that place is a noisy, noisy stadium. And it holds, the new roof holds in the sound. So I've been at games with that have 15,000 people there, that I would say double the, the crowd noise of the 23, 24,000 people that are at Tim Hortons Field. So it, it, it gives it a nice atmosphere. But if, as they say, if they have more bums in seats, it would be even more appealing on television to watch. Okay, so you mentioned Tim Hortons Field. This is where I kind of want to go with this because this TFC is clearly a huge success story now. It, is, it took a long time for it to become this, but it is now a huge success story. We are hearing that they are trying to start up and plan to start up a new Canadian professional soccer league in this country. It will be several steps below TFC and Major League Soccer. What do you? Th- how do you think that plays? What's your level of interest in going to a game there? I, I, I'm wondering if this is the area for this to happen. We're already questioning if the Canadian Football League will survive in the Golden Horseshoe. And, you know, maybe because of the losses of the first eight, nine games of the season for the Tiger Cats, there was, you know, maybe a dwindling crowd and fan base and interest more so. Uh, When I look at a league like that, what you're speaking of, that would not be the top league. I mean, I think there's already people out there that, you know, want to criticize the MLS for saying, wow, it's the North American soccer. It's, uh, it's not, you know, the, the English Premiership or the Bundesliga or Syria. Ah, you know, it's not La Liga. Like it, so if you go another level, quote, down, even though I'll call it as much as a development league, which I think this country certainly needs if it wants to compete on the world scale, I just don't know if it works in terms of getting you know, a big crowd and a big following, Scott. And, and I, go, I go back to my point. I think that a huge part of TFC's success is on the field, but it's also the fact that if you go to a game, you know you're being part of something really exciting in the stands. You're going, there's going to be singing, there's going to be jumping, there's going to be chanting, there's going to be smoke bombs going off and flags waved and people holding their scarves. And I just, if you take all that away from a TFC game, how many of the people who are into this 
are still into it. There's there's certainly going to be a soccer base, but I don't think it's like it is now. Well, I, I think I think what you had, Scott. I mean, remember this is what nine years of the franchise. For the first six years of the franchise, the party was there, and it was the place to be, and people were going. But the team was bad, and I think until Tim Bezbachenko came in there as the general manager. This was a team that I think was starting to have a fading fan base, that people were starting to say, okay, you know what, we're kind of tired of just going there and having a great time in terms of the partying. When will the winning happen? Because think about it, TFC were bad, really, really bad. Oh, yeah. So now that they're winning and they've got a management crew that turned things around. They got Michael Bradley in there, a world-class you know, midfielder. Giovinco and you know, Josie Altidore are world-class strikers. You know, and you know, and you know, some would say that Giovinco is the best player in MLS history, and his numbers may you know, make a good argument to that. So I, I, I'll go back to it by saying that it all went hand-in-hand, hand, and the timing was perfect for TFC, because just when things started to slide, the team got good, and they were able to magnify the atmosphere with a good team, which I think you know is the reason why you look at the stadium right now on television, and you're going, wow, look at this place. Yeah, I want to be there for that kind of thing. Even if I'm not a huge soccer fan, I want to be there, because that's the place to be. I think, and, if, and the losing, I think if the losing continued, though, Scott, I Probably, think, probably. You know, but here's the other thing about this, and this is where I think the Argos are struggling. Here's where a number of things with millennials, the CFL is struggling. There has to be, Toronto maybe more than a lot of places, there has to be a cool factor. There has to, it's, we know in Toronto that if some place becomes the place to be, everybody wants to go there. And when the Jays three years ago, two and a half years ago, again became the place to be, it got full immediately, overnight. You made those trades. Uh, Alex Anthopoulos made those trades. It was the place to be. And look at the crowds for the last couple of years. But look at the crowds before that for four or five or six years. And again, losing had a lot to do with that. But once it becomes the place, man, you can move tickets in that city. But, and this but, is a perfect example. I'll go back to the Jays, though. Once the, I mean, remember back, and I guess we're talking three years ago, once those trades were made, the team went on, what, an 11 game? 100%. They go hand in hand, for so, sure. I, you know what? I, I, it goes hand in hand, but I still would put the winning over the atmosphere. Really? Yes. I think you need to win. Because, as I said, with TFC, the party can only last for so long before people start to complain and say, look, I'm putting down, you know, hey, this is Toronto, right? This is the Toronto market. There, there is no cheap ticket in town any longer. Maybe the Argos have dropped. I mean, let's see what, now that they've won, let's see what happens. So once start people start putting down great money to see a product that's not losing, and that's why I think TFC is the perfect example, because it had this atmosphere that, it was, like you said, was the place to be. And once they could not add a product that would, you know, the Toronto city could be proud of, people started to, the crowd started to dwindle. So the Jays, the same thing. Anthopolis makes the big deal. Boom. The Leafs are starting to win. You know, and... The, I mean, people might might not know this, and only because I went, I've gone to so many Maple Leaf games as part of the media. Previous to Austin Matthews showing up, for about a two-year span there, you could get tickets real easy if you really wanted to to go to a, a Maple Leaf game. That is no longer the case anymore because of the young kids and the young youth movement, and a guy having a guy like Austin Matthews again. So I still think the win is the most important thing. 
You know, the Raptors got a big jolt, and it was it was a planned jolt, but they got a big jolt when they got Drake on board because when he's now their advisor, not their advisor, what is he, their, uh, their, their guy who sits next to him. And for, the and, ambassador. The ambassador. And for everybody who loves Drake now, it's like, wow, that's the cool factor. That You've got Drake. He's the Jack Nicholson that used to be with the L.A. Lakers. And, again, you had the Jays with the cool factor with all the people coming. And it, I, what I want to see now is, Jumping to a different kind of football, and you alluded to it, and we only have a couple of minutes here. The Argos win the Grey Cup. The Argos, they still, to me, in Toronto, don't have that cool factor. And I I look at that, and I think, I, how do you parlay then even a Grey Cup victory into getting BMO Field looking something like this for an Argo game? And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you capture that cool factor even with the winning. Well, and you're right. There's no doubt about that. The Argonauts, for all those teams that you just named, definitely skew the oldest in terms of crowd of the crowds. You know, you're talking about people that have been going to Argonaut games for 20 and 30 years. There's no doubt about that. Where you can't say that about some of the other franchises, with the exception of the Maple Leafs, and I would put them in a historical category for that. But you know what? I was very enthused to see when I was at the Eastern Final, the Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, all wearing Argonaut hats, all in the building you know waving at people you know they were they were there and i think if you can somehow i don't know how you do it or i would not be in this job and i'd be in a marketing <laughs> job right making lots of money probably more money than i'm well, not probably definitely making more money than i'm making now you would have this crowd as a younger crowd and i think they're taking some positive steps in the sense that when you go to a game, they're trying to duplicate some things of the Raptors, and that's having the music and you know the some you know introducing whatever cool people they would believe that are in the stadium. I also believe that so if you watch some of those commercials, they're very Raptor-like. They're very young and hip, and the clothing that's out there. I mean, I don't know if people have. I mean, there's the hats that the Argonauts are wearing with the single A. I find them very cool and very slick. Yeah, I thought it was really funny watching Ricky Ray put on the gray cup hat because it had the no, the non bend brim, which looks yes. he looks he does not wear that well. He looked goofy with that hat on. He needs the baseball cap where it bends at the front, and he's the, what is he seventy two years old now? He needs the old man hat, not the one where he looks like an overage Justin Bieber guy. But nonetheless, I, I know exactly they're trying to go after that. Here, here, we only have a minute. What is your best guess? You've now got a Grey Cup championship. Maybe you've got some momentum. How many extra season tickets do the Toronto Argonauts sell for next year over this year? They've got to stay. I, I, think, I think if they continue in the offseason to stay visible, they can't just be invisible, no commercials, no talk, don't have players around. They've got to stay in the Toronto sports conscious, and I don't know how you do that. That's by having guys out, by hosting things, being at, uh, at children's uh, functions, whatever. They've got to be visible, uh, Scott, and I think you have to remain in people's ear or you get forgotten really quick. Can Ricky Ray do balloon animals? Or will Ricky Ray be even be around? And I mean, there's just- there's a huge problem. Honestly, there's a huge potential problem for the Argos, and we're almost out of time. But here's a guy who now everyone's talking about Ricky Ray. And by the way, I wrote this in the paper on Saturday. Why is it that every other player in the CFL, we just mentioned them by their last name, but he's always Ricky Ray. Anyway, um, <laughs> Ricky Ray, he is the one star, visible 
star that most people in Toronto now probably would recognize, and yeah. he's making comments that he may be retiring. And man, that that that's got to be tough if you are the Argos thinking, okay, we're gonna we're gonna market these guys, and then the one person you can sell says, yeah, see you later. The only, I mean, they, they might trade be for able. Zach Caleros. I'm exactly. I mean, because Zach's a young, good-looking guy. You know, he's accomplished. He's done things in the league. Uh, he's hungry, uh, and and he would have come from Hamilton, which that in itself could be make a huge story. Trade for Johnny Manziel. <laughs> well, I mean, he's totally unproven, but I think the Caleros thing can work as well too. I think that the Argos, to get that sizzle, and really at this point, they've shown they've got the stake. they got to get the sizzle. Man, I would think they would be so tempted to try to make a pitch for Johnny Manziel just to bring him in to, you know, even if he doesn't work out, let's just get people in the building. Well, the Tiger Cats have until the 30th of the month, to, which I guess is tomorrow, to finalize some type of contract with them, or he's, uh, he's off to wherever he wants to go. He will be the weekend sports anchor for CHCH <laughs> while he fills his time, while he bides his time. Bubba O'Neill, that's not true. Uh, Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. Good times as always. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let's get on to the census for a moment because uh, this is a, I thought there was some really interesting stuff in here and some puzzling stuff as well. But let me get on to it for a second because, well, let me go through a few of these things that um, that really caught my, that caught my attention in this. And one of them, the first thing, Canada ranked first in developing countries or developed countries with 54% of its residents having a college or university degree. That is up 6%. Over 2006, we have now most of our people, the majority of our people now have degrees of some kind. And why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because, first of all, we know it's hard to get a job. But we also have more people than ever who have university degrees and college degrees, which tells me that maybe some of the degrees that we're granting to people, some of the people who are going to university are completely wasting their time. If if more than half the population has a university degree, it's not special anymore. It's not unique anymore. It's not setting you apart anymore. It used to be. Once upon a time it was. Now, not so much. Now everybody has one. Now, if you don't have a master's degree, your bachelor's degree is pretty much, well, not useless, but, but more and more people are actually returning according to this, more and more people are returning to old school trades, things that for some reason we had decided as a society, oh, that's not really a good way to make a living, or that's not really as good as having a university degree. You've got to go to university. Everyone's got to go to university. Well, now if everybody is going to university, Those trades are suddenly opening up doors for people and people are starting to catch on. Good for them. Clever for them to say, why am I just going to compete with everybody in the same areas when I can find something else, when I can get into something that is now opening up and 
you can you can make a nice living. I assure you, we had to have a plumber at our house this week. Really good guy, very good plumber, nice guy, talented. Did not charge us an arm and a leg as plumbers go, and yet he still had a nice morning when you look at what he made. And he was fair. He was he gave us a fair price. But nonetheless, it was not an inexpensive price. He, there were, there were, there were things there. There is some money to be made there. So good for those people who, who, who are taking those jobs and taking those lives, moving ahead in the trades. University, 50%, over 54% of Canadians now have a university or college degree. Second thing on here that really struck me is interesting. Uh, nearly one in five Canadians, 65 or older, are working, at least part-time. That's a problem. And I'm sorry if you are one of those people, 65 or older, uh, glad you're listening. But the fact that so many of you are still holding jobs, that is starting to cut into the jobs that younger people can have. And that came when we decided as a society, as a province, I don't know how many years ago it was, 2006, 2008, something like that, that the, there was no longer going to be a mandatory retirement age. Um, that is proving to be something of a problem. It just is. One in five are, and, and a, a large number are working right through. Robert is on the line. Robert, how are you tonight? Robert was on the line. I guess he I, his patience ran out exactly as I pressed the button. Robert, call back. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and if you are listening and have something you want to say on these issues, love to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Uh, one other thing on this that I want to bring up before I get to one of the, the, really th- one of the things that really struck me as being very interesting, and that is the amount of time people are spending driving. A lot of people are commuting. A lot of people are commuting and the amount of the commute, the length of the commute has gone up. The average commute in Canada last year was 26.2 minutes. That was in 2016. It's going up. Now, keep in mind, this is across Canada. This is not in the Hamilton to Toronto corridor where 26.2 minutes would be a miracle. It is going up and it is going up and it is going up. Now, On the one hand, keep in mind that if you are having to commute longer and longer, the Scott Radley Show begins an hour earlier next week. We're starting at 6 o'clock. We're going from 6 till 8 next week, no longer from 7 till 9. So you will be able to tune in and catch the first hour at least while you're still in your car. Because I'm sure if you're coming from Toronto, you're still going to be in your car. But that is a long, long amount of time to have to be sitting in your car Nearly 7% of all commuters spend an hour or longer going each way to work. And I bet you that a huge number of those are in the Hamilton-Toronto corridor, people who are traveling down that route where things are just congested all the time. But let me get to the part that I find really interesting here. And this is where I want to hear from you particularly. Because for the first time ever, in this census, it points out that women 25 to 34 with an earned doctorate, so PhDs, 
outnumber their male counterparts. There are more women getting doctorates than there are men. First time ever. Before I get into that, let me go to Jack. Jack is waiting on the line. Jack, how are you tonight? Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? It's your buddy Jack in Stony Creek. Jack, thanks for calling. Listen, a lot of people who are still 65 or older and still working, keep in mind that a lot of these people have worked for many, many years in whatever company, but the company didn't have a pension system, and those people didn't put money away for a pension. You are 100% right. You are 1,000% right about that. If they quit working, they realize, what the hell am I going to live on? You are so correct. And And they know that the Canada Pension Plan won't cover them. Yep, yep. And this is one of the big reasons why a lot of your older people are still working. They can't quit. And you know what, Jack? When I said that this is a problem, uh, that was not a, a casting a blame on the people who are 65 and older. I understand why they are continuing to work, as you clearly do. They have to, for most of them. Some of them, they just want something to do. I grant you that. But most of them, yeah. they need to have that income because you're right. There's no pension they, they, or there's not enough pension. But again, even if they have to work, it still remains that it's a problem because those are jobs that are not being opened up now for people coming in at the bottom end. So we do have an issue. It's not a not understandable problem. It's an understandable problem for sure, as you point out. But I don't know what you do about it because now you got the millennials who are coming up and finishing school with their degrees and there's nowhere for them to go because those jobs are still held. And the, and the problem here, Scott, is that the situation is only going to get worse. In what way? How, why do you say that? There's more and more people re- wanting to retire or more and more people coming up to 65, 66. And the boomers are at that age, but they can't retire. Yep. There's hordes of them. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. And I don't know. You, I don't think you can go back to the days when you had mandatory retirement. And certainly for those people, you can't suddenly implement a pension because you don't have the years to put the money into it. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't know exactly what you well, do at this there point. Was, there was an article in TV News tonight about a lady who's... Uh, 98 or 99 years old, still working at, at a Wendy's. Now, she's doing it for fun more than anything else. I hope so. <laughs> Listen, Jack, I really appreciate the call. It's a great insight, and I, I appreciate your insight. Thanks. Take care, buddy. Uh, he's not wrong at all. It's not that, I mean, there's some who are in that age who who could retire but choose they, they want to do something. I get that. But there's also a lot of people that say, I really, what do I do? How do I make ends meet if I don't keep working? But then how do those jobs free up at the bottom end? But let me go back to this other point. And, and again, the number is 905-645-3221, star 9900 if you want to get into this. More women, as I was saying just before we got on with Jack, more women than men for the first time ever were getting doctorates. Although not so much in fields like science and technology and engineering and math. Okay, so there are areas where they are getting more PhDs, but it's not in those particular areas. Where are women going then in the workforce with their PhDs, with their high-end degrees, period? Where are they going? Well, I'll tell you something. According to the census, one, sorry, in the healthcare sector, women outnumbered the men four to one. You go into the healthcare sector, and there are four women for every one man. Now, in the high tech sector, 
men outnumber women three to one. So here you have two different areas of our society, two different areas of work that clearly, well, you would think anyway, would appeal. It, it appears this is either they, they're they not getting in because people are saying, I'm not going to take women or I'm not going to take men. I I have a hard time believing that in 2017, that universities are saying, I'm not going to admit a woman into engineering. If their marks are good enough and they apply, they're going to get in. Just as I don't think that they're suddenly saying, we're not taking men in medicine anymore. If their marks are good enough, they will get in. For whatever reason, we've got a split here. We've got two areas that are drawing different genders. Here's the part that I'm curious about, though. Here's the part that I find really interesting, because there was a story from the Canadian press that was published today, and it's talking about this engineering gap, the three to one, three men to every one woman, and it comes from the census data today. And it is kind of a, it's a story in which a number of people are ruining the fact that there is an underrepresentation of women in science, technology, engineering, and math, and are, and making the case we need to have more women in these fields. And you've heard this before. You've heard this many times before. You've heard people say, "Oh, we have to have more women here. We have to have more women in construction. We have to we have to break down that door. We have to have more women who do those jobs because right now it's such a male-dominated field. We need to have women who get in there and do those things." And here's my question. I don't have an issue at all with women who want to do those jobs. I have no issue at all. If you're a woman who wants to be a construction worker, great. If you're a woman who wants to go into high tech, Fantastic. If you're a woman who wants to go into computer programming, outstanding. All those things. If you're someone who has the marks, equal or is better than a guy, but at least the same, if you have the marks, if you have the interest, you should be going into that line of work. And you should be able to bring up the numbers of women. But what I've never heard, and again, keep one thing in mind here, what I just told you. In the healthcare sector, women outnumber men four to one. We hear often that there is gender underrepresentation of women in certain lines of work. I don't ever remember hearing anyone argue that we need to do a better job getting men into certain fields that are underrepresented by men. Have you ever heard anyone say that? I've never heard anyone make that case. I've never heard. I've heard lots of times people saying, we have to get more women into engineering. We have to get more women into this. We have to get more women into that. I've never once heard anyone say, you know what we really need? We have to get more men into nursing. We have to get more men into elementary school teaching. Have you, have you ever heard that? And I don't understand what the difference is. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, if, if there is truly an issue right now where universities are turning women away from tech programs based on their gender. If that is in fact happening, shame on those universities. But I have a hard time believing in 2017 that that is going on. I, I believe, I don't have reason not to believe, that maybe, despite everything we like to say, that there are some differences between men and women still. And for whatever reason, and I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and I'm not going to go into the depth to be able to do this, for whatever reason, 
we seem to have, based on these numbers, we seem to have a higher number of women who lean towards the medical, the health field, and we seem to have more men that lean towards the tech field. Is that wrong? If that's the way, if you have equal chances to get into these things, if that's your interest, you should have that interest. But if we have vast numbers of women who want to go one way, it seems, and men who want to be on the other side, is that wrong? Because again, I'm going back to the point. I have never once in my life, and maybe it's been said, but I've never heard it. I have never once heard anyone say, you know what, there is gender underrepresentation in nursing, and therefore we should have more men. We should make sure there are more men. We should somehow change something so there are more men who get into nursing. We want to make it so that ultimately half the nurses on any ward in any hospital are men. I've never heard that. Have you ever heard anyone say there is a vast underrepresentation of men in midwifery? I've never heard that. There's one male midwife in maybe in Canada, certainly in this area. I've never heard anyone say, that's vastly underrepresented. We must get more men into those areas of work. And you want to know something else? Just in case someone says, well, the issue is we want women to be in high-paid jobs and men to be not just taking all the high-paid jobs. Well, let me tell you something. That four women to one man in the healthcare, those healthcare jobs, healthcare nurses, doctors, they're not being poorly paid. I'm not arguing that everyone is equal in right across the board in every line of work. But what I'm saying is, if it's a natural flow, if somehow, and I don't understand it exactly either, but if it's somehow we have way more men applying for tech spots and way more women applying for health spots, by definition, is that a bad thing? And I'm not sure that it is. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for calling in. Hey, no problem. So I was listening to you talking about this. Um, I'm a psychotherapist, and I know Perfect. in my field that there's probably six women for every male therapist Why? out there. Why? But I think that the reason for that is because I think the, the, the fields that are saturated by women are fields that are more right brain, more empathy-oriented, more feelings-oriented, and the men are, tend to go towards the left brain fields of logic and what have you. Not to say that there aren't women who are CEOs and lawyers and guys who are nurses, but I think as you look at those numbers and, and look at the huge differences, I think you're going to find that a lot of the fields that women dominate in are fields that will require some greater sense of sensitivity, empathy, feelings, and so on. Okay, now Mark, if you're right, and I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a psychotherapist, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give more weight to what you say. Assuming you're right, is that a problem? Is that a bad thing that people are in fields that, for whatever reason, they stream toward? I, I don't think it's a terrible thing. We're, we're, we've been fed this line that we're all just the same and equality and so on and so forth. And the truth of the matter is, is that we're not equal. We have, we share a pool of similarities, but we're all unique individuals. And so, the fact that there's more female nurses, I don't think, is a huge problem, um, you know, other than if the, the, the field itself identifies that there is a specific need to have men in other than just, oh, my goodness, you know, we got to keep the gender field, you know, equal here. I think that's really poor reasoning for, for making a, 
you know, a clear decision. I, when I looked at these numbers, Mark, and, he, and here was the thing that I found so interesting about this today, because if, if when we're looking at these numbers from the census, if we saw that across the board in every highly trained, uh, high-degree, university-degree-requiring position that is being paid a lot of money, if all those jobs were being held predominantly by men, I would, I would absolutely be the first one to line up and say we've got a problem here, that we're yeah. not allowing women opportunities. But when you look at the healthcare system, and according to this census, it's four women to every one man, yep. there are clearly areas where women are leaning towards or are directing themselves, streaming towards, and that's fantastic. That's, that's, that's wonderful. And those yep. are those are reasons I would expect those are good paying jobs, especially if you're in the medical, if you're a doctor. And so, have you ever heard anyone say, you know what, Mark, uh, you're sitting at a at a, uh, a dinner or you're sitting having a drink with someone, or whatever, and say, you know what, Mark, you know what we're really missing? We need more men in nursing. I've never heard that. And you're not going to. And that's a whole issue unto itself. Sort of back in the '80s and '90s, I forget. Phil Donahue's wife's name, but she wrote a book about raising kids, and she was the one who posited the idea that we should raise uh, kids non-gender specific. And interesting thing, she she never had a child of her own, but the book caught on for some reason, and as a result of that, um, a department store in the U.S. got sued for having a sign up that said, you know, toys for boys and toys for girls at Christmas. Uh, a toy manufacturer. Um, in, in catching on to this paradigm shift, said, well, let's create a dollhouse and let's see if we can make it both interesting for boys and girls. Well, they made the dollhouse and the girls were arranging the furniture and the boys were launching the baby crib off the roof. <laughs> so what, what I'm, I'm saying in all of this is that this, this feminization that's gone on towards the male gender, years ago you would see ads about, you know, young boys, you know, join the... Boy Scouts of America, join the military, so on and so forth. You would see commercials, you know, extolling the value of being a male. Today, you will see commercials that will extol the value of being a female. And you don't see commercials that really celebrate the sense of being a male. You'll see things like, you know, men are domestic abusers, and there's truth to this. But the the rap on the males tends to be much more shame-based, whereas the rap for the females tends to be much more congratulatory and uh, affirming. And not to say that, you know, I know that there's that's a very general point of view that there's all kinds of other sure. problems that, that exist. I'm not... No, and Mark, I, I got to run to a commercial, but I really appreciate the call. I really appreciate the, uh, the insight. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks. Um, Again, I want to go back to this for just 10 seconds before we go to the commercial, because if there are women who want to go into the tech fields, they should have every opportunity to do that. There should be nothing that would stop them from doing that. That's, that would be terrific if more women decided they wanted to go down that road. But I don't see it as a problem of gender imbalance if you don't have women choosing or lots of women or an equal number as men of women choosing to go down that path. It's being po- positioned that way by some people, but I don't see that as a problem. I don't. Any more than I don't see it as a problem that we don't have an equal number of men as elementary school teachers. As long as the opportunities are there, if you were to choose that you want to go there, 
as long as you have the chance to do it, if that's your choice, if the numbers don't add up because there's not as many making that choice, then I'm okay with that. I don't think we need to force a 50-50 in everything just to have some kind of fake balance when the interest level or the demand is not there. But I would love to hear from you on this. Radley at 900CHML.com if you have a thought on this particular topic. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.